Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. This morning, we come to the very last passage of the book of Revelation. And we'll study this particular passage this morning, and then we'll wrap up the whole series next week. So where we have been, John has been giving us a description of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, which is the church, the bride of Christ. And in these final verses, he brings the book to a close with some final encouragements and exhortations to the readers of this book. So let's read Revelation 22, beginning in verse 6. I'll read and you can follow along with me. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the pro prophecy of this book, for the time is near. <clears throat> Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. All right. Well, this is just what we would call an epilogue. It's just the, the ending of this book as John is kind of wrapping things up. And I'm going to take this just kind of in three sections this morning. So the first section, let's start by looking at verses 6 through 10. And the message here is that the fulfillment of this prophecy is near. And when we say the fulfillment of this prophecy, we're talking about the message of the whole book, the entire message of the book of Revelation. So what is that message? Well, the basic message has been that because the Jewish nation has rejected the Messiah, Jesus, Jesus will now judge them. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus, the Messiah, and his message of salvation. But we also see that the message is rejected by Israel and her leaders. By the end of the Gospels, the rejection comes to a head in the murder of Jesus. 
Jesus is crucified on a cross. And in the providence of God, that crucifixion is the very means by which Jesus brings about the salvation that he came to accomplish. He dies as a substitute in the place of his people, shedding his blood as the perfect final sacrifice for their sins. It's what all of the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing forward to all along. It's what the whole message of the Old Testament has been leading to. But the Jews rejected Jesus. And now that Jesus has died and has been raised from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, taking his place on the throne, he's ruling over his kingdom. And the, the establishment of his kingdom, the new covenant era, means the end of the old covenant, the Jewish kingdom. That old covenant comes to a crashing end in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans. It happens exactly as Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. And remember what Jesus said. When you see this happen, you'll know that I am on my throne in my kingdom. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is the sign that Jesus is now ruling as king. And the message of the book of Revelation, written in the mid to late 60s, just a few years before the events of A.D. 70, that message is that the judgment is about to fall. The whole way through this book of Revelation, that has been the message. It's a message of warning to the Jews. But more than that, the primary message of the book is a message of hope for the church. Hang on. Don't give up. Jesus is coming in judgment. And those who have been persecuting you, the Jews who rejected Jesus, will suddenly find themselves facing the wrath of the Lamb. And when that happens, when the old covenant finally fades away for good, when the dust settles after this coming judgment, when all of that happens, then the church will find herself established as the bride of the Lamb, married to the Lamb, to Christ. And the kingdom of Christ will advance and will grow, and the gospel will spread, and ultimately the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the message of the prophecy of this book. And here at the end of the book, just like the way the book started, John tells us that this is happening soon, not in 2,000 years, but in a few short years after the time he wrote this, it happened, just like Jesus said it would, just like John's prophecy here in Revelation foretold. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed as Titus and the Romans invaded Jerusalem, and the Old Covenant, with all of its signs and symbols and ceremonies, came to a final end. Now, that's a message of hope for the church. Think about it this way. We can have messages that bring us hope. Maybe you find yourself here in election week particularly hopeful. You've seen government going the wrong direction. You've seen tyranny increasing 
And so you have hope that election day will bring a change to that. Well, that may or may not happen. People are fickle. But imagine if you, if you knew the future. And the, the trials and the punishment of all who are evil rulers in the world today. You, you knew. You saw what was going to happen. If you had that knowledge, would that help you to endure now for a little while longer? Knowing that that judgment was coming is a message of hope for the church. It enables them to do what John says, to hang on, to endure. And Jesus says, I am coming soon. What does Jesus mean that he is coming? Just like so many places in the Old Testament, it means his coming in judgment. Look at verse 10. He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? Why is he not supposed to seal up the words? Because the time is near. When Daniel prophesied about the same thing 400 years or so earlier, what did the angel tell him? Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Seal up the words, because it's not going to happen for a couple of hundred years. But now, John is told in Revelation, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. It's about to happen. You may remember way back at the beginning of the book of Revelation, when we started this series, we saw the same thing. Revelation 1.1, the things that must soon take place. Revelation 1.3, the time is near. John bookends this book with really clear statements that what I'm talking about in this book is about to happen. So these same promises that this is about to happen are repeated. Beginning of the book, end of the book, it's what John is emphasizing. So what is John to do? What is the church supposed to do? Well, in verse 7, we read, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And in verse 10, the angel says that he's a fellow servant with those who keep the words of this book. So what does it mean to keep the words of this book? It's actually not too complicated. It means to believe the message of the book and to live accordingly. Believe that the judgment is coming and be faithful in spite of persecution and difficulty. And for those of us who live in the present time, reading this, it means to believe the message of the book and li live accordingly. We're on the other side of the judgment of A.D. 70, but we still live by faith. We believe the message of the prophecy. We believe that we as the church are the bride of Christ, that we are supposed to live holy lives, like this book says. We believe that God's plan is to use us to spread the gospel, the good news of his kingdom, until all of his enemies are defeated and the nations are discipled and the earth is characterized by obedience to Christ and honor to him. And as verse 9 says, the right response to all of this is to worship God. So we worship him. We worship him in our families and through the work that he's called us to do and through the way we relate in this world. And we worship him as a church, as the bride of Christ, when we gather together formally for the expressed purpose of honoring and glorifying him. That's what it means to keep 
the words of this book. Let's look now at verses 11 to 16. These verses emphasize the judgment that has been spoken of in this book. We see that Jesus is the judge, and we see that the judgment will reward the righteous and punish the wicked. The righteous are those who have bowed the knee to Jesus, who by faith have their sins atoned for, who have by God's grace been dressed in the righteousness of Christ. So they're righteous in God's sight, not because of their own righteousness, but because of Christ, their king. The wicked are those who have not bowed the knee to Jesus, who have rejected the good news of the gospel. Those who stand in their own righteousness, which God says is being like dressed in filthy rags. Yesterday, our family was working on preparing the space for a garden for next year. And we used a whole lot of cow manure to do it. And Elijah and I ended up being the ones with our hands in it. And uh, he said last night the same thing that I was thinking. I don't think I'm ever going to get the smell of cow manure off of my hands. That's the picture, this filthiness of sin. You can't do anything to get rid of it. You're, you're dressed in filthy rags. Every one of us is a sinner. There's, there's none righteous, no, not one. Sin is a disease that causes sickness. Sin is, um, it, it decays. Sin is, um, it, it's pollution, it's filthiness, and we're dressed in those filthy rags. The wicked, as God has said, there's none righteous. No, not one. Well, these verses, verses 11 to 16 here, call for a clear distinction. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. See, there are really only two categories. The righteous and the wicked. God doesn't grade on a curve or a sliding scale. The point is not that you need to be a little better than average. I may not be Mother Teresa, but at least I'm not like those people. Fill in the blank. No, that's not what the Bible says. You're either dressed in the righteousness of Christ or you are in your own sin and filth. As John writes this prophecy, those categories for the Jews that he's speaking of are either, number one, you have submitted to the Messiah, King Jesus, or you have rejected him. Righteous, wicked. Those who reject him will face this coming judgment. And Jesus says, I am coming soon. There it is again, soon. And I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. During his ministry on earth, Jesus foretold this. If you were to look, for example, at Matthew 16, you would see this series of scenes where Jesus warns about the coming judgment and also proclaims who he is. If you reject him, you'll face judgment. He foretells his death and his resurrection. He tells the disciples that following him will mean denying yourself and taking up your cross. In other words, you'll be persecuted, just like the situation as John writes the book of Revelation in the years leading up to A.D. 70. And what Jesus says in Matthew 16 finishes with these words. 
where the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That coming that Jesus refers to is his coming in judgment in A.D. 70. He says that in A.D. 30, and he specifically says, there are some people standing here who will still be alive when this happens. And he says that when he comes, he'll repay each person according to what he has done. Well, in the context of Matthew 16, that means, what have they done with Jesus? Have they accepted his message and submitted to him? Or have they rejected him like the religious leaders of Israel? That choice will make all the difference, Jesus says. And now, in Revelation 22, John repeats what Jesus said, and he tells his readers that Jesus is coming soon. In verse 13, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This world belongs to Jesus. John says in his gospel that Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God. And, John says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, this world was brought into existence through Jesus. It belongs to him. So not only does it begin with him, but it ends with him. He gets the final say. The future of this world will be what Jesus says it will be. He's the Lord of this world. He's the judge of the world. And Jesus warns of his judgment coming in A.D. 70 as the rightful Lord and judge. He will punish the wicked. In verses 14 and 15, then, the distinctions emphasized again. Who's in and who's out? Who belongs to Jesus and who faces judgment? Those who belong to Jesus are those who have washed their robes and have the right to the tree of life and have the right to enter the city by the gates because they are holy and their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, what does it mean that their robes are washed? It means that they're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Their sin has been taken care of by him. They have his holiness graciously given to them because they have faith in Christ. And they can eat of the tree of life. They have permission to do that because of the eternal life that Jesus promised because they've believed in him. And they may enter the city because they are now holy in God's sight. Adam was exiled, remember, out of the garden, away from God's presence. But Jesus has opened the way for us to return to God's presence. So we are now welcomed through the gates of this temple city. We belong there if we have faith in Jesus. So who's on the outside? Who faces judgment? Well, the list in verse 15 is the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and those who practice falsehood. Dogs is a term for those who bring abominations into worship. So for Paul, the Judaizers are dogs. In Deuteronomy, it's homosexuals that are called dogs, and they're forbidden from entering the tabernacle or the, tab the temple. 
And because the context here in Revelation 22 has to do with who may enter the temple city, it probably has that connotation in view. So any sexual deviancy, like homosexuality or immorality of any kind, or sorcery, which appeals to the demonic, or murder, like abortion, or idolatry, false worship, all of that prevents someone from entering the New Jerusalem. However, it has to also be said that repentance and faith in Christ changes everything. So for those who have a background like this, but have turned away from that sin and toward Christ, Paul says, such were some of you, but no more. Paul says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if your background is the list of things here in Revelation 22, does that mean you're excluded? It means you're called to repentance and faith. And when you turn to Christ in faith, then you're now in that category of what Paul says, such were some of you. But now you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. You can be made holy. But for those who are unrepentant, they will be excluded from this city temple. And in verse 16, Jesus again emphasizes who he is. The judgment is coming, Jesus says, and remember who the judge is. He told us in verse 13, he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Well, now in verse 16, he says that he's the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. These descriptions are emphasizing that he's the rightful king of Israel. David was Israel's greatest king, but when David spoke in Psalm 110 of the coming Messiah, he called him my Lord. So the Messiah would be David's descendant, but would also be greater than David. Jesus is the root and descendant of David the Messiah, of David meaning Jesus is the Messiah, because he is both of those things. Jesus is a man descended from David of the tribe of Judah. He's a legitimate heir to the throne of David. But he's also the root of David. He comes before David. That's because Jesus is God. He is eternal, so he's greater than David. And just like David prophesied, Jesus the Messiah is the root and descendant of David. David's descendant and David's Lord. And Jesus also says that he's the bright morning star. Well, the morning star is the planet Venus. And this planet was associated with rulership and world dominion. So by calling himself the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star, Jesus is saying he's the ultimate king and ruler. He's the king of Israel. He's Israel's rightful king and Lord. And he's the ultimate king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So when he says that he's about to come in judgment, he has the power and authority to do exactly what he says he's about to do. In verses 17 to 21, then, we finally reach the end of the book of Revelation. And in these verses, John gives some concluding exhortations and encouragements. In verse 17, we have an invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears the message of the book is encouraged to echo that invitation. Come. Well, who is being invited? 
Well, the verse tells us, let the one who is thirsty come. The one who desires take the water of life without price. Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. It's the good news of salvation in Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of God. Well, who gets to drink from that river? The one who's thirsty. In other words, the one who recognizes their need. We've all seen babies or toddlers who... Um, Maybe they have trouble with nursing or there's medicine that they need and you're trying to give them the medicine and they seem to be doing nothing but battling against it. You have to recognize your need is the point here. You have to be one who is thirsty. And if you recognize your need, you're invited to come. We sing the song, Come Ye Sinners. And one of the lines in there is, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. What is it that Jesus is looking for in someone? He's looking for someone who recognizes that they can't get what they need on their own. They're thirsty. They need the water of life. They're spiritually dead because of their sin. And when we come to recognize that, that's all you need to bring is your thirst. Your desire. Anyone who sees that in and of themselves, all they have is death. Their sin has led to death. They're dead in their sins. When the Spirit of God opens someone's eyes to see that, when they recognize their need, when they have that spiritual thirst, they may come and drink freely, without cost. Spiritual life, eternal life that comes through Jesus is completely free. It is the gracious gift of God. In Isaiah 55, the prophet Isaiah says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, okay, nothing to offer, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. God is a gracious and generous God. He's ready and willing to save any who come to him in faith. There's nothing you can give to God that would convince him to save you. There is nothing you could offer him that didn't already come from him in the first place. Salvation, this thirst-quenching life, is a free gift of God. All he requires is that you see your need of him, that you believe him, that you submit to him. In verse 18, the warning is given not to add to or take away from the words of this book. Sometimes this verse gets applied to the whole Bible. It's really specifically talking about the book of Revelation, but if it's true of this book, then it's also true of the rest of the Bible, too. But the point is, the message of this book is serious. If someone does add to or take away from the message, in other words, if, if someone denied that Jesus would come in judgment or something like that, then God would judge him with plagues and he would be excluded from the New Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't imply 
that the person had salvation and lost it. What it means is the person is showing by their lack of faith that they never really belonged to the people of God. Because the way you belong is by faith, by believing what Jesus says. In verse 20, Jesus once again tells the readers that he is coming soon. And John echoes with his own agreement. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. As a member of the persecuted church, remember John is in exile on the island of Patmos, John longs for Jesus to come and judge in righteousness. And that's a good and healthy longing for God's people to have. And John finishes the book, verse 21, by saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. What makes the difference between those who belong in the New Jerusalem and those who are excluded outside grace god's grace freely given and received by faith this book was written in the mid 60s a.d with the promise that these things would happen soon the time is near for them the relevance of the book is obvious but what about us today almost 2000 years later what I hope you see as we come to the close of the book is two things. Jesus keeps his promises, and Jesus rules the world. The whole point of this book is to tell John's readers to hang on, because the judgment Jesus promised is about to happen, and we know from history that it did happen exactly as Jesus said. When Jesus says he'll do something, he'll do it. The timing may not always be what we would expect. He may do things differently than we would if we were in charge. But he always keeps his promises. Jesus, being God, does not lie. God is a God of truth. You can trust his word. If we take Jesus at his word, then we realize that he is ruling and reigning right now. Just as he said he would. He gave us a sign that would tell us that he's on the throne, a sign of judgment against Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. And it happened. That sign then tells us that he is on the throne as he said. Jesus described his kingdom as being like a tiny little mustard seed that grows into a large plant or yeast that over time works its way through a whole lump of dough. Or like the stone in Daniel's vision that eventually becomes a great mountain filling the whole earth. Or like the trickle of water in Ezekiel's vision of the temple that flows out and gradually becomes deeper and wider until it affects the whole earth. I don't know how far along that river we are today. I don't know how big the mustard plant is by now. I don't know how much more rising the lump of dough has to do. I don't know how big the stone has gotten or how much more it has to grow until it becomes a mountain. But I do know that Jesus is ruling and reigning. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will continue ruling and reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death itself on the day of resurrection when we are all raised, some to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. So where does that leave us? What should we do now with this truth? Well, first, because Jesus keeps his promises, we should trust him. We should believe him. 
Trust him for eternal life, that free and gracious gift of salvation that he offers us. But also trust him for your daily life. He's given us, we are told, very many great and precious promises. And those promises are fulfilled in Christ. He's told us the best way to live. And he's given us his law to teach us how to obey him. Do you trust him? Do you obey him? As the old children's chorus says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And second, if Jesus rules the world, then we should serve him. We're to be his loyal subjects, his faithful bride. It's not our place to be able to predict just how long it will be until the kingdom of Christ dominates the world. No, it's our job to be faithful. To obey the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, because all authority already belongs to him because he rules the world we are to go we are to disciple the nations we are to bring people in to become part of the bride of christ we are to teach them to obey his laws and we have his promise that he's with us as we do how does god want you to advance his kingdom Faithful families that obey his word and honor him. Being part of a church family that is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. Being faithful in your workplace by working in such a way as to honor King Jesus. This book of Revelation has great historical value to us because it shows us how Jesus kept his promises to the original readers of John's book, but it is relevant to us today too. This book encourages us to be faithful in the midst of opposition. It gives us reason to have hope and confidence in Jesus, the true King of Kings. The book calls us to live courageously and faithfully because Jesus keeps his promises and Jesus rules the world. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, um, I pray that the, the central points that you wanted the readers to hear would be the things that stick in our mind. All of the, all of the details and the, um, just all of the, the, the difficult things that we've studied together um, all of those are important, but most important is the central ideas here. You are a God who can be trusted. Jesus keeps his promises, and you are a God who rules the world. You're on the throne. You came in judgment just as you promised. You will come again one day just as you have promised. The dead will be raised, some to eternal life and some to eternal punishment. Help us to respond rightly in faith to Jesus. But I pray that you'd also enable us not just to trust Jesus for 
our eternal destiny, but to trust him daily in the way that we live, that we would live lives that are intentionally seeking to honor our King, Jesus. That your kingdom would grow slowly and over time through us as we live faithful and holy lives. We can't do that on our own, but by the power of your spirit, in the power of the gospel, this good news of what Jesus has done for us, we can live faithful lives. Enable us to do that. Cause us to have in our minds who our, uh, our groom is, the, the lamb. That we as, as the church are the bride of Christ. That he's our Lord. That he's our savior. That he's our king. May we live rightly in response to what we've heard in this book. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.